Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to episode five of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today with Dr. Diane Solomon. Dr. Solomon originally received her Master of Science in Nursing from Yale, becoming a certified nurse midwife devoted to women's empowerment and health. After two decades of practice, she returned to Oregon Health and Sciences University for her Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Post-Master's Certificate. Dr. Solomon also holds a Certificate in Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy and a PhD in Nursing, with the latter focusing on healing family relationships in the context of aging. With a private psychiatric practice in Portland, she is honored to help clients heal and thrive from trauma to joy. Dr. Solomon is also a health policy advocate, promoting the nurse practitioner role and the NP solution to primary and behavioral health care through systems level change, engagement, action, and collaboration. She volunteers as adjunct faculty at OHSU on the boards of Oregon Nurses Association, Nurse Practitioners of Oregon, and the Oregon Wellness Program, and in other ways to enrich the lives and well-being of others. That is a mouthful. This is congratulations on all that. That is that is phenomenal. And welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You know, you live long enough. You can do a lot of things. Yeah, and it seems like you have done a a, a vast array of professional work around nursing, which I always love to read people's careers that have just done tremendous work, especially in like one specific area. And I noticed while reading your CV that you originally have your bachelor's in psychology and then went on to receive your master's of science in nursing. So I assume that that master's of science of nursing was a bridge BSN MSN program Actually, no, I went to Yale, which was the first master's program for non-nurse college graduates. Oh, wow. That has been replicated all over the country. But at that point, we called it a three-year program for non-nurse college graduates. So we had, I had classmates who had done all kinds of bachelors in different fields and had decided to become nurse practitioners or nurse midwives. And the first year was just 11 months of intense RN training. And we took our boards after that year, got a month off and then started learning how to become nurse practitioners. Wow. Or nurse midwives. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's intense. That's, that's more intense. I think than my second degree program for my bachelor's only. And then I waited a couple of years to do my master's. So I could only imagine the combining of those two was very intense, very intense environment. It was at Yale New Haven hospital. Yeah. It, it was kind of in the dark ages. I like to say that when I went to nursing school, nurses were the profession, probably still the most trusted, although mm-hmm. I don't know if Gallup did their polling about that then. 
but definitely the profession that smoked more than any other profession. <laughs> and that was shown in studies. And it now, as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, it really makes sense to me because I think nurses a lot of times go into nursing because of their own trauma, major trauma or minor trauma and wanting to help others. And now we know that people that suffer trauma and especially adverse childhood events are definitely more prone to not only chronic diseases, but smoking, substance abuse, uh, depression, anxiety. So now looking back, it kind of makes sense, although it was definitely uh, it didn't make much sense to me at the time. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that was a pretty eye-opening experience. I have colleagues that have 40 years experience in my organization, and they will bring in photos of what units were like only 20 years ago, which is not that long ago. And you were, and people were smoking in the units in the break rooms. And I think to myself, yes. that is crazy to think <laughs> that smoking, healthcare, how does that makes sense but somehow it did back then and thank you for that context because that kind of brings it full circle for me in terms of the trauma experience in terms of the smoking correlation and how that plays an impact into the caregiver role of being a nurse you know that's mind-blowing right there what what made you decide then to become a nurse well, honestly, I was looking at becoming a physician or a nurse. I was really, um, this is a podcast, so you can't see me. I am well under five feet. My, uh, I, my growth was stunted as a child because I had life-threatening asthma wow. and uh, malpracticing allergists gave me anabolic steroids and ACTH shots. So I was a really, really sick kid. My parents thought I was gonna not make it through adolescence and I almost didn't, but I did. And so I really wanted to go into healing because my whole childhood had been spent with a lot of time in healthcare institutions and hospitals, et cetera. And I thought maybe I could give good care because I knew what good care was like. And I decided to become a nurse midwife instead of a physician, honestly, because I decided to apply to the Yale program, see if I got in, and at the time I was working at a Planned Parenthood outside of DC and there was a nurse midwife working there and an OBGYN and the OBGYN really recommended that I not go to medical school. She <laughs> touched her head and said, it really touches you. That's quite, that's quite remarkable. I, I, I think my journey to nursing school, you know, I never had somebody telling me not to do nursing school versus medical school, but I certainly felt a larger gravity towards nursing for the caring aspect alone. And I wanted to be involved with patients right away 
as opposed to more studying, more school, and then more studying and more school. I just felt that that was perhaps not the route for me. And the nurse midwife, you know, I, I didn't realize before uh, fully, you know, diving into the nurse midwife role that it had been around for so long. And I mean, centuries and centuries old as the first nurse ever was a midwife in Egypt, just not called a midwife. Right. And so that for me was, was I was like, wow, this isn't just some career that was developed very frequently in time. It was actually a practice that has been devoted to the science of it for forever. Well, you're right. And I think, Nicole, that healthcare in America in the 1800s was basically taken away from women and traditional Black, Indigenous, people of color healers in America by, I'll just call it out, white men who started medical schools and made sure to exclude you know, people who did not look like them and people of other genders. And they've sort of taken control of healthcare in our country ever since. And we can see where healthcare is. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the way you framed nursing versus medicine, that is so important because nursing has a much more holistic relationship-based prevention, health prevention and promotion, as well as treating disease framework and lens and medicine, which we really need. I mean, certainly modern medicine has some great things that are essential, but it is pretty strictly framed around disease treatment not the whole person, not the relationship with the person, right. not health prevention and promotion. So I think nursing can really uplift our whole system and nurses and nurse practitioners need to be at every table mm -hmm. where healthcare is discussed. They, they really do. I'm so glad that you called it out as you did because I find that that's so important to discuss today and moving forward that this knowledge is addressed and this knowledge is announced and responsible. And I wondered if that was the reason why your internship was within a Navajo reservation. That was, that was a really neat item I found on your CV. I was like, wow, that, this is the first nurse that I have found that has actually been within a reservation in Arizona. Uh, I have family in Arizona, so I kind of felt, felt a connection. I am not of Native American um, origin, but I do find it important that we learn more about our Native friends. And I've just wondered all about that. Can you tell me what that internship was like, why you chose the internship you did to, the, to help people that I teach, which have a lot of different di diversity and backgrounds? Well, honestly, you're asking me some uh, sensitive questions because the actual answer is I wanted to get as far away 
from Yale, literally and figuratively as I could. Not that I didn't get a great education at Yale, but I did feel sort of out of place at Yale. I mean, I am white, but I'm also Jewish. Jewish at that point, you know, I was Jewish from California, vegetarian. I didn't, I felt sort of out of place there. And so I wanted to get far away, both physically and definitely culturally. And that's, we called it integration, integrating everything we'd learned in midwifery school for a, at least a three month internship. I think we were required to do 50 births, at least something like that. It was such an incredible honor to be able to go to the Navajo reservation and uh, I was blown away. I learned things there. I never could have learned at Yale or any academic institution. The native women there just taught me so much about acceptance. You know, in America today, in obstetrics, we really lay this belief on women that if they do everything appropriately and they eat right and they sleep right and they don't do drugs and they do everything correctly, they'll sort of be guaranteed a perfect, healthy child. And that is just not true. Uh, thank goodness, in most cases, it is true. And, you know, the great majority of babies that are born are born healthy and the moms are healthy. But now, including what we know about women of color giving birth in this country, the increase in morbidity and mortality that happens to them, bad things happen in obstetrics. And on the Navajo reservation, there were some really uh, tragic outcomes that happened. And this was when ultrasounds were just beginning to be used and they were very rudimentary. There was so much we still didn't know about a pregnancy until the birth. And those women and the way they, their stoicism and acceptance and their engagement and trust in the natural order of things just blew my mind and taught me things I never would have learned anywhere else. I really, uh, I, you know, it was just three months, but there's nothing about it that I've forgotten. Wow, that's so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, cause I, I, I didn't realize how sensitive that was to you, but I know that that will help so many people, especially just professional colleagues that are not in nursing, but are black and are pregnant and have questions about so much. So I know that that will help them out. Even if they're not Navajo, um, I know that that will help them out tremendously once I put this episode out there into the world. And I really now looking at what are, is happening in our country I just acknowledge how much privilege I had then mm -hmm. as a white person going in as a student, you know, being as caring 
and dedicated as I could, but only for a few months and just really uh, feeling so humbled and appreciative and grateful for that experience and that those women let me in and, you know, had any amount of trust for me was just such a great gift. Yeah, I completely am on a similar boat with privilege because I'm a clinical instructor and my student body is can be very diverse. And mm -hmm. when discussions around diversity and privilege came out, I knew that I had to discuss this with my students because I didn't want them to see me in a negative tone or someone that they, that they could not approach with any, with any issue. And so I allowed so many different discussions to happen and allowed my students of color to just speak about whatever they wanted to speak about that was important to them so that we could learn together about their issues. Because you're exactly. not going to learn about this in schools or in textbooks because quite honestly, the textbooks are trajected towards white America as painful exactly. as to discuss, um, but it is the truth. And there's a lot of people in the background that are trying to fight for it. I see it a lot on Twitter. Uh, there's certain um, accounts that are trying to, you know, say to these textbook companies, hey, you need to change the way that we discuss these things because they are not inclusive. You know, mm -hmm. I try to discuss with my students, I love research, but I'm aware that so many so much research is based on Caucasian white males or yes. Caucasian gen, uh, people in in general and so for those reasons it's really important to discuss stories like yours that have impacts because they're hidden you know right and so that's why I kind of was like man like I need to know all about what a reservation was like and how that affected one person because this is going to affect I think a lot of people when they hear these stories and it sounds like that this really impacted um, your love of women's empowerment well I went into women's health because I felt women need to be empowered it was the late 70s with our bodies ourselves and I volunteered in college with a sort of a free women's mental or women's health center in Portland. So I was already about this, you know, sort of countering the don't worry your pretty little head about it, honey, that I felt was embedded in our obstetrics system. And yes, that was just one step on that journey that really increased my commitment and devotion to helping women chart their own course for their health and their healthcare. And I'm not always right. I'm human. I make mistakes. You know, sometimes I get burnt out or stressed and, uh, you know, that comes out in my daily work, but the idea, the goal is to reach that ideal of helping others create the health course for themselves that they choose, collaborating with them to create what they want, whether it's in women's health or their birth course 
or certainly definitely now in mental health. Mm, that's so important. So did you decide based on your work within women's health that psychiatric mental health was the next best step for you? How did that process for you work? Well, you brought up that I started with a bachelor's in psychology. So I was always really interested in uh, human nature. And before going to midwifery school, I did think about becoming a clinical psychologist. But I had that holistic bent and wanted to be involved with the body as well as the mind. And then after being a midwife for several years, first of all, the hours are really difficult. Mm -hmm. And it is a very stressful profession. I was working at Oregon Health and Sciences University, which is a high-level trauma center. So the... Uh, patients there were very high risk. So it was a very stressful environment. And I did over time learn, then I lived in rural Oregon and was in an outpatient clinic, but I also started having kids of my own. And so I wanted to be home at night and able to sleep but more than that, I started becoming more and more fascinated with what my patients were telling me, not on their pelvic exams or their mammograms, but mm. what was going on in their lives and what was getting in the way of where they wanted to go, what were the obstacles, how they could clear those away. So that's when I decided to go back and get a post-master's certificate as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. That's fascinating. I work in neuroscience myself, and I like to know what the structural issues are with individuals after stroke or at, with a brain tumor and how that interacts with choices and motivation and care after the patient leaves my hospital. I never really thought of the concept of what people tell me as an actual imperative for clinical practice. Yes. So, yeah. So that's because, really, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, because what they're telling you if you follow that thread is where they're wanting to go. It's what's important to them. People don't talk about things that they don't care about generally. And the other thing about what you said that's so important to me is that you're in neuroscience and neurosurgery where there isn't really stigma. You know, neuroscience right. and neurosurgery intersect with psychiatry so closely, but there is still, there's less, but there's still such a great stigma about psychiatry and this idea that if you're depressed or anxious, you should be able to pull your up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But actually, it is absolutely just as physical in the brain as having after having a brain tumor or a stroke or anything like that. So you're in a perfect profession where you can really help fight that stigma. That is so and so many neurological insults 
end up having depression or anxiety as a comorbid condition. There is really no mind-body disconnection. They're very connected. You've just hit the nail on the head for me in so many different ways that I had not thought about before because you're right. There's not this stigma that exists on my unit when we see a patient that develops depression as an, an afterthought of their disorder. Mm-hmm. And perhaps because we know that something happened to them, that this is why they have this outcome. So a stroke happened to them, they are more at risk for having post-stroke depression. Whereas we don't discuss traumas of people that have happened in their life of what they want to tell us and assume that because of that, they're going to have depression. We often seem to think that resilience is the answer and that they should just move on and not want to discuss these things. That's such a huge component that I I'm definitely going to teach my students, hopefully next semester, I don't even know, but it'll, it will exist for forever on this particular podcast, which I will definitely send them to. I know that I, I'm going to send this episode already to the student group that I just had this particular semester, um, not only because of the two students that I mentioned that wanted to become midwives, but just because we, I, I, tr- I try to explain to people that your mental health is just as important as your physical health and coincide with each other. And just because we can't see a structural damage to somebody doesn't mean that they're not suffering in some way. And I often teach to the point of pseudo seizures in patients Mm -hmm. because those particular patients, and I haven't really um, seen one, knock on wood, in a, a couple of years now, but the stresses that those patients have are so push down inside of themselves that they develop these seizure-like episodes and they want them to be real because they want an answer for what they're going through. And then when you tell them that their seizures are not clinical seizures, they, they can become very upset about it. And that's the, that's the intersect I think that is the next bridge of how do we move on from structural damage causing mental health issues to, you know, stressors in life where do you, where are your goals going to be at in life? And I think of things like palliative care services that would have an impact of this and many other services that could help with this. And when I see the um, psychiatrists come by to help out our patients, it's often a missed opportunity because we miss the part of talking to the patient from the beginning. And I'm not saying the psychiatrist did, I mean like staff nurses like myself, have perhaps missed the opening conversation of how are you feeling today and what are you going through? Yes. How are you feeling emotionally today is a great question. And you touch on so many great points. First of all, for depression and anxiety, there are structural changes we can see now through PET scans in the amygdala and the hippocampus. Mm. So those are very real. And in other cultures where depression and anxiety are not so well known, there are there is more expression of things that are more foreign to us, like pseudo seizures or other things that we can't find a biological or anatomical basis for but uh, we know are real to people, like 
early in my midwifery career, I worked at a clinic uh, where there were a lot of, most of the patients were Latina women and Latinx patients. And they had this concept of susto, which means if someone's been given a scare or a fright, they might then have physical symptoms or anxiety symptoms. And they take this really seriously in their culture. So it's again, where our cultural privilege doesn't accept or look at possibly other explanations that are just as real. And the last thing I wanna say about what you said, you're, you're bringing to mind so many important things, is that one of the ways we have to go forward in integrating physical and mental health is first of all, integrating them in outpatient settings. So mm -hmm. primary care and behavioral health are together, but also integrating them with a trauma-informed lens. Because like I said at the beginning, we know that any kind of trauma in childhood and the more trauma, the more, the higher the dose response relationship of chronic diseases, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to be trauma-informed in our medical care always that the physical symptoms can always be manifestations of psychological anxiety, depression, or what have you. And if we're more trauma-informed from the receptionist at the front desk to look at a patient and not think what's wrong with you, but think what happened to you will be more compassionate and more trauma-informed and hopefully more trauma-informed and self-compassionate about ourselves as healers as well. And I think perhaps some of the violence that we've read about over the last two years towards healthcare staff might go down by being trauma-informed and really building our organizations to accept this, but then work with the person as opposed to absolutely moving them away. De absolutely. De-escalation techniques are exactly that. First of all, they're shown to decrease the violence against healthcare workers. But second of all, the reason is they help the person feel seen and heard and given their own dignity you know, we, we need to give patients their dignity. We don't have to accept unacceptable behavior, right. but we need to give them their dignity and do that with compassion. Sorry, I hit the mute button by accident there for a second, but that is so important that de-escalation techniques, and they are so simple too. They're very simple classes to put on at organizations and even now, I think in the time of a pandemic could perhaps be easily done with telehealth services. Yes. Do you think that mental health and outpatient clinics, like, do you see that component becoming more of a telehealth component? 
I love this question because I am so excited about what I call COVID silver linings. Early in the pandemic, I was asked to talk to the Oregon Nurses Association labor representatives about how to talk to nurses who were feeling so um, not attacked, but fraught on the front lines and stressed out. And I actually wrote up a little piece called the ABCDEs of self-care in pandemic times that the American Journal of Nursing published on their blog. Uh, their blog's called Off the Charts. And it sort of just went through some things people could do for self-care, but one of the big ones is basically thinking about what I called hashtag COVID silver linings. What are the positive things we can be grateful for in this pandemic? And, you know, sometimes I have to dig deep at the end of the day during the pandemic to actually find things to be grateful for, but I always can, even if it's that a bad day is over, you know, that it's the end of a bad day and the next day will be a good one. But one of the huge major COVID silver linings for me is telehealth and the fact that we will never go backwards. I really believe insurance companies will be, um, will continue to reimburse for telehealth because if we have telehealth, we're gonna be able to do prevention a lot easier. It's going to save insurance companies a lot of money in the long run, let alone it is absolutely the right thing. Patients love it. Patients who did not have access before, who live in rural and frontier areas, can now access care. It really increases accessibility of care. And I think quality of care because patients are more likely to get in touch earlier on and hopefully more frequently to real, really deal with problems before they become a big issue. I'm so glad that you brought up the ABCDE of self-care because I because I saw that and I was like, oh, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> this <laughs> sounds like something that my colleagues want to hear about and also my students want to hear about. I, I talk a lot about wellness at my current role because I feel like it's so important to, number one, and firstly, care about yourself before you care about your colleagues, before you care about your patients. And in that order specifically, because you are the only one at the end of the day. And I think that that hashtag COVID silver linings is such a great hashtag to really garner a conversation around what was your positive for the day? What could you have done better today? What, what happened today that perhaps didn't go so well, but you also are thankful for something and have a practice of gratitude in your life that this has occurred. Um, for me, you know, I've, I've been through a several tough things throughout my course of being a nurse. And I recently, well, not recently, but a few years ago started triathlon, which I know has nothing to do with anything, right? But triathlon has taught me to be gracious and practice gratitude 
for every little thing that I that has that happened. I get a flat tire for some reason that that happened, you know, for me, right? And I'm and I'm grateful for the experience because I will learn something and fix it and move on for the next time. And so when traumatic experiences happen to me, I I try to always go into this practice of gratitude because it's going to help me in the long run teach me about something as opposed to ingesting it and keeping it down and not and not thinking about it and not talking about it. So I think absolutely that you brought up is so important. Yep, go ahead. Sorry. And it's the self-reflective process that we're taught to do as nurses that's so important to us personally as well as professionally. And I love that you say we have to care about ourselves first because I think that so often we as nurses and as a predominantly female profession are only too happy to throw ourselves under the bus first for someone else. And the fact is we are not gonna be good for anyone, not our patients, not our families, not our friends, if we don't take care of ourselves first. And women in our culture, I, I work with a lot of mothers in my psychiatric practice and women slash mothers really feel, I think like self-care is selfish. Yes. And it is something I try to teach over and over again, that self-care is not selfish you're not going to be able to help anyone else or be there for them if you're trashed, if you're not taking care of yourself and your needs, physical and emotional. I also think that when you talked about nurses smoking at the very beginning of this podcast, that that was a way of not taking care of themselves right it was it was the way of of trying to cope with things exactly and that was within our history of nursing is we've learned how to be resilient enough to deal with certain items but not necessarily take care of ourselves through the process and now we're hitting a period of time where we realize that burnout is a significant factor as well as moral distress in terms of the livelihood of being a nurse yes and I think that, you know, we can create all sort of wellness programs we want to. My, my favorite wellness programs are those that really start at the, at the ground level and happen because it fits a complex system as opposed to just putting a bandaid on top of it, if, if that Yes. Yes. I, I think hospitals and the healthcare systems through this pandemic have been promoting self-care for employees and that's great, but it cannot fall totally on the nurse to fix the fact that she's stressed out because she has too many patients and unsafe staffing, which gives her moral distress or not enough PPE, et cetera, et cetera. And resilience is critical, but what we know about the research around trauma as well as resiliency is that they're always in a balance. 
you, you know, you can be resilient from trauma in terms of how many of the good coping skills and community supports and social supports you have. But you can be the absolute best at self-care. And if you're working in an environment that is hostile to your needs for safety, for breaks, for burnout, et cetera, it doesn't matter how resilient you are. Right. You are so, going right. to be traumatized. Yes. And that's so important that when I teach my students of how to look for their first job, it is very important that you find a psychologically safe environment where you can express yourself if something happens, that the system does not blame you for problems when it's a system error. And also cultural diversity is so important to the acceptance of diverse people that if, if the organization is not willing to discuss what they're doing for cultural diversity, it perhaps might not be a good fit for them. Absolutely. Yeah, cultural diversity gives different perspectives just by having people that have different backgrounds and lived experience. And that is inclusive and gives a positive slant to thoughts and perspectives that are different or outside the box. And that creates more fertile collaboration and solutions. Mm, yes, and it's so exciting. And then, and then you can have like food brought in for you and it's just a welcoming <laughs> environment. It's one of my favorite yeah. things to be quite honest. I, uh, I, I did an innovation course down at the ANA in, um, Maryland and the area where the ANA is, is so diverse with food. Uh -huh. it, you could, you could like walk out two blocks and you are in, in, you know, enveloped in this area of just different cultural restaurants. And I'm like, this makes me feel so good. And then I return back to where I live and I'm kind of like, I'm missing diversity a lot. We have a lot of diversity. We, our hospital just received a um, best of diversity awards. I'm more talking That's about- great. It's very great. We've done a lot of great work surrounding diversity. I'm more and talking I, about, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I think what you're saying about food is a great metaphor mm -hmm. because, you know, America traditionally has been fairly accepting of other cultures' food, but not much else. Correct. But we can all be so enriched not only by the food, but the entire culture that that food comes from. Exactly. We have cultural humility and are just open to learning and learn sometimes to shut our mouths and listen to other people's lived experience. You just completed my thought process. So I'm glad that you interrupted. <laughs> that was great. I was like, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you also have a certificate in psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic, excuse me, psychotherapy and a PhD in nursing. And so, and you mentioned that you're in your practice, you see mothers and you help the mothers. And I've noticed your research is based on the dyad between mother and child relationships, which I think to myself and my mom and my relationship, we, I, I love my mom, best friend. And 
I wondered if you can go into what your research is about and how it's really shaped your practice. I love my research. I started the PhD program because I don't know if I'm a masochist or I just, I do love to be in school. I really do. Uh, you know, my family sort of knows not to let me try to get any more degrees, okay. but um, <laughs> as soon as I started my first term as a PhD, student, I was going to investigate some issues in psychotherapy, but my mother was diagnosed with ALS and she was so courageous. Uh, she decided from the very beginning that she was gonna chart her own course and decide what the rest of her life was going to look like. And I, she was my best friend. I was very close to her from the get-go. I and my siblings all said, whatever you want. It took my father a little longer to get there, but he came around, absolutely. And she basically created and lived out the end of life and death that she chose. It was as beautiful and perfect for her as it could be. And I changed my whole line of research to um, hospice at end of life because I realized the research is really clear that 95% of people, if asked where they want to die, they will say, they want to die at home surrounded by loved ones. Mm -hmm. But in America, only 25 to 35% of people actually do that. They die in hospitals or sometimes in long-term care, but a lot of times in hospitals being transferred there in the last few hours, which is just not a peaceful death most of the time. And so I changed my research to, uh, again, empowerment in dying. And I started, I became a rex, an expert in caregiving at end of life, families at end of life. And it was clear reading all the literature that most of the research had been done on spousal couples, uh, but the fact is in, in two thirds of cases, the, the dyads at end of life are mothers and usually adult daughters. And that daughters are doing more of the caregiving than spouses, but nobody had really, there isn't a lot of research on adult daughters experience. Uh, it's something like 88% daughters and 12% sons. Wow. You know, it's usually the sons if there is no daughter. Although that is changing now that our gender roles are less, uh, are, are becoming more flexible. 
So that's what brought me to my research. And I was really honored. It was qualitative research. Since there hadn't been a lot of research done, we needed to know more of the lived experience of both the adult daughters and the mothers who were dying. And uh, I got to interview 10 dyads, both the mothers and the daughters. And I interviewed them immediately, one after the other uh, in the same few hours so that they couldn't talk to each other about mm -hmm. the interview in between. And they knew it was confidential. So I think they really felt like they could unburden themselves. It was really such an honor. That's really neat that your research impacted not only yourself, but also helped other people and uh, get off their plates something really heavy for them. You know, I hope so. these feelings, you know, hopefully. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. That's, really, that's really neat. Then did in, in your time um, with your practice, because you've been involved with policy changing, your adjunct faculty, um, have these all been within the same theme of what your research is about or what your practices have, have been about? Or is it different? Uh, well, both. Uh, yes and no. I do love to work with patients who themselves or their family members have life-limiting illness and really help them uh, create for themselves or for themselves and their family members the best end of life they can. And that's something we don't talk about very much in our society. And so it's really a privilege to be able to help people with that, especially to help family members because uh, what my research and other research shows is that if the family members feel good about the way their loved one died and the circumstances surrounding that death, the family members themselves do much better in bereavement. They're much less likely to have complicated grief or get depressed or have other uh, sort of traumatic issues including PTSD in bereavement. So in my psychiatric practice, I really enjoy helping people with that. Uh, I am doing some research now with a colleague. I, I did the, P I went through the PhD with, talk about traumatic. We have shared trauma that we both were resilient enough to survive and uh, that is on dementia diets, people with dementia and their spouses and trying to use, it's actually really creative, trying to use biometric data mm. like Fitbits and bed mats that measure sleep yes. and door sensors to actually get objective measures of some behavior for the person with dementia and the loved one to help uh, improve their quality of life and help them 
live the rest of their life in line with their own values and preferences. That's so again, empowerment. Full circle. I just had a discussion earlier today on another recording with a nurse named Daniela, who's in Canada. And her number one passion actually is dementia care in long-term care. Uh, she's she's tremendous at it. And she enlightened me to the eight A's of dementia. And it's fascinating that your research, and I'm having this conversation with both, both people today, dementia must be the theme of the day. <laughs> but it's really cool to see that that these new innovative techniques of door sensors and Fitbits and all of this data can come together and help make things like long-term care facilities safer. Yes. Help make inpatient care safer because you're tracking the behaviors of those in a new way and not just based on surveys. Right. Not on self-report, which is unreliable with a person with dementia or staff or family report, which is more reliable, but it is still subjective. And subjective data is great for qualitative research. But when we really want to do quantitative research into helping improve the environment, say, for people of dementia or whether their their quality of life measure, you know, scales are improving. Yes. We really need this objective data. Yeah, perhaps quality of life means that they're able to walk to the kitchen 10 times per day as opposed to five because their dementia is progressing. Right. Right. But maybe their their the floor is safer because all the fall risks have been eliminated. And so they are safer when they walk to the kitchen. Yeah, and that's so important. And I can imagine that this type of research will also help the technology get better in the long run. They'll have this objective data to look at. I apologize, my dog is barking in the background. That's Um, okay. He gets so excited about the mailman. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I feel like, you know, you could you could perhaps even work through an entrepreneurial program to develop safer dementia care. I don't know that if that's what you want to do, but that's just an idea off the top of my head here that there's such huge you know things needed for those that have dementia. And even I, I go and think of traumatic brain brain injury rehab, where the patient can just wander, and we don't know if they're safe or not. Right, right. And that's the brilliance of my colleague, Lindsay Miller, brilliant nurse researcher that I'm helping with this research. She looks at dementia in terms of the individual care values of the person with dementia and their partner. And those main care values that we all can relate to are having autonomy, being a burden or not being a burden on our loved ones, safety, etc., and social interaction, and trying to maximize not only figuring out which of those are most important to the person with dementia and their care partner, but trying to maximize their the rest of their life trajectory 
in line with those values that are important to them. It's really, I need, I have to give a shout out to her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and you know, we, there's going to be show notes from our episode. And so whatever you want to provide of in the show notes is going to be of value to everyone. Um, so even providing her name or her research, whatever is great. Um, the ABCDEs of self-care is going in right. there because right. I love that. Um, and even, you know, just the discussion alone about cultural diversity and, and things like that can go a long way in privilege. We really hit home, I think, with a lot of different students that I have. Um, so I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, like this has been the most like comprehensive conversation I've had with somebody um, that's, that has been so good to talk about in a very direct way if that makes sense, uh -huh. but a very, you know, way of just discussing things that this is important and we need to discuss this stuff because at the end of the day, these things are what's going to change our healthcare dynamic and healthcare system. Absolutely. You go. Yeah. <laughs> it's such to, an right? honor. It's really such an honor, Nicole. You just gave me a chance to talk about so many things I'm passionate about yeah. that I've thought about since I became a nurse long ago I was only three years old when I went to nursing school no, <laughs> just kidding <laughs> I, I was 21 so. that's awesome I was not 21 so I um was 23 or 24 when I went back to nursing school because I, I had done my initial baccalaureate degree in philosophy with oh, a lot cool. of coursework in, in nursing and people back then, and this was only in 2006, which wasn't really that long ago, but people back then were like, what are you going to do with philosophy and nursing? And I'm like, have you never take a have you ever taken a philosophy course or expanded your thought process on what rhetoric means or what uh -huh. convincing something to someone is? Like, that's the basis of philosophy. And I just thought to myself, this is going to be a great backbone to whatever I do. I have no clue what it, what it was going to be back then, right? But I thought yes. to myself you know, this is probably going to be a really good tool to use in the future. And now here I am talking to people about their careers in nursing. And, you know, for whatever reason, all I'm doing is, is looking at what you provide me. And I'm so thankful that it's opened up so many doors for people to, you know, just address things that they wanted to, because that's the, that's the purpose of what we do I uh -huh. think, as creators. And for people listening, Diane and I have never met in real, in real life until today. We took a course on uh, nurses being media ready from the University of Pennsylvania. There was a Zoom um, conference, as you will, a like an hour or so, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And what was your what would what was your aim for attending that, if I may ask? Well, I have all these ideas and thoughts that I do love to talk about and share. And nurses and nurse practitioners are my tribe. And I have a Twitter account where I'll tweet stuff, but sometimes it feels like it goes out into nothingness. Mm -hmm. And so I want to connect and network with powerful nurses and nurse practitioners and be more vocal in a way that can be positive and produce 
thought sparking yes and positive change yes i think you've done that today i hope you Thank felt the you. same way i did because it was this conversation is you know these are very sensitive subjects for people to talk about certainly and, and go ahead i'm sorry well learning as a nurse midwife early on you learn to talk about sensitive subjects and in psychiatry you learn to talk about sensitive subjects and i'm really grateful for that because i am okay bringing up things like you said at the beginning you have to talk about cultural diversity and privilege and bigotry and racism and we have to allow people to tell us how to check our privilege yes. or where we're coming across as bigoted or racist and so i'm just really grateful for the experience of not only speaking directly about sensitive subjects but working hard to not take things defensively and being open to listening to other people's perspectives and learning and hopefully growing. Yes, I think that's so important. And one of the things that my students have taught me and have been gracious enough to, I think, you know, really accept me for who I am because they don't know me when they first meet me, you know, and they probably think, oh, I'm going to, you know, have another white adjunct clinical professor who probably doesn't know where I'm coming from and probably doesn't know X, Y, and Z. And I don't want that for my students at all. I want them to be able to, like I said, express themselves in a way that shares their story and their struggles. I've learned so much, um, you know, the other semester about tribalism and what that means to a community of people uh -huh. in the United States yes. of America. Yes. And they, this person goes to Africa every summer to visit their family there and wow. goes back here. And, you know, that just opened the door to so many things. And I think really at the end of the day, helped my students who had no clue these things were going on, it, that these things do exist and they are issues. Just because it's not happening in Hershey doesn't mean it right. doesn't happen elsewhere. Right. You know, I think that that's really an important hit home message for this particular episode that needs to get out there in a very positive way. Absolutely. You know? Have you thought about making a website? Just curious. Or do you have a website? I don't have a website. I'm listed on Psychology Today. I have thought about making a website. Why do you ask? I Just because of the, the networking um, uh -huh. area of things. So, I have a website, but I don't necessarily use it as my, as my card, but I find that, you know, if you have so much to share that perhaps one spot of this is where you can find all the things that I know about and do, that might be a really unique tool for you to do. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. That's a that, great idea. That could link with certain things. And um, certainly if you wanted to find nurses that you know, want to collaborate with you on so many different things, because if your research is so unique in that you have such lived experiences that would help, I think, so many people, even, even in the smallest amounts. Like there's a organization called Data for Black Lives that I think would, I don't know, probably be able to utilize what you've done in their own capabilities, huh. you know? 
or just different organizations like that. But yeah, I just think I'm like, man, like if she, you know, networking is such a such a big tool, but how do we do it? I don't. I'm not an expert at it by any means. Yes. Um, well, we do it like this. Yeah, exactly. This was a great thing that exactly. came out of that webinar. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Is there anything wow. else that you would like to tell the listeners that are going to listen to this episode? I just really appreciate the opportunity and the wonderful job you're doing as a host to bring up issues that need to be talked about. And I would love, I'm open to any feedback and connection and look forward to our cross, our paths continuing to cross. Yeah, I hope for you to be a guest again on an episode. I have ideas in my head. I want to do an episode around cultural diversity and racial disparities and things like that, that I want to invite previous students to and and other individuals as well to help have an open discussion about these important issues and what goes on. Um, But also just to have discussions with people and catch up with them to see how they're doing. That's important, you know? So yeah, yeah, so I hope that you would like to be a guest again. And thank you so much I would for, love to. for coming on and sharing your lived experiences because I know that deep down inside, those are those could be very difficult for you to share. And I really just appreciate the vulnerability and the strength that you have given my listeners that it's okay to think different things and really be okay of self-checking yourself sometimes. And being open to sharing them because you never know what's going to happen in a safe environment yes yes like this. Oh, psychologically safe environment Free yes. to do whatever you want thank you yes. so much again i really thank appreciate you, your time Nicole. take care you really too. appreciate it bye